Thank you so much. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it is really great to be back at Columbia after uh, receiving my doctorate here. And as many of you know, the doctoral process is long. I was here for a very long time, so definitely feels like coming back home, um, being back at Columbia. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really pleased to be here today and talk to you about our work uh, just you know down the road at NYU. And um, I look forward to really uh, discussing potential collaborations with the Berry Center in the future. And I apologize for the late start. That was completely my fault. So it was a crazy morning this morning. Um, so uh, as was mentioned, I'm on the faculty at NYU School of Medicine within our Department of Population Health. And within our department, I sit within the section for health equity. And our section supports a lot of uh, health disparities research um, at NYU. And we're really supported by several NIH and CDC-funded center grants. Um, as well as uh, a lot of different uh, kind of investigator-initiated research. Um, in my own research, I'm really interested, you know, kind of broadly in uh, developing models that link communities to systems, healthcare systems in particular, but other systems as well, um, in meaningful ways to prevent and manage cardiovascular disease. Um, I le lead several diabetes prevention and management projects that uh, are culturally adapted models specific to Asian American populations. Um, this just no disclosures. Uh, today, though, I'm really going to focus more broadly on describing diabetes disparities in Asian American communities, um, and the goal of my presentations are listed here. I'm going to, you know, give a little bit of start with a little bit of context in describing the sociodemographic profile of Asian Americans, both uh, nationally as well as in New York City. Um, and then really uh, go into talking about some of the specific disparities around diabetes that Asian Americans face, both as a group and across ethnic groups. Um, I'm going to highlight a case study of an intervention that I lead um, in the South Asian community, a diabetes management intervention, um, and then just end with some recommendations for policy, practice, and research. And you know, I really welcome discussion and questions at any point in the in the presentation. We don't need to wait until the end. Um, so just starting off with some context. Um, so you know, it's no surprise to anyone that the landscape of America is changing demographically. Um, and there, nowhere is this more dramatic than in the profile of the immigrant population. Um, as this demographic displays, the percentage of immigration from Latin America and Asia outpaces migration from other areas of the world substantially. Um, and the growth in the Asian American population is large not just as a percentage, but also in absolute numbers. And what's more is that this growth will continue um, with Asian Americans projected to constitute 10% of the U.S. population by 2050. Now in areas like New York City, Asian Americans are already 15% of the population here. Um, this figure represents a state-level map um, illustrating the diversity of the largest kind of Asian groups across the U.S. Um, and what's, why I like this figure and I think what's important to highlight is that um, we're increasingly seeing that large proportions of Asians are living outside of traditional settlement areas like New York City and places in California, but really are kind of spread across the country now in places like Texas, Illinois, Florida, Georgia, et cetera. Um, and despite the increasing numbers and the really tremendous ethnic diversity um, that um, con uh, consists of Asian Americans, uh, according to this graphic, there's over 30 kind of ethnic subgroups that are part of the Asian American kind of umbrella. Um, Asian Americans remain kind of poorly understood and understudied in many regards. Um, and largely this is due to an inadequacy of available data, both available data and also the reporting of data um, that results in a tendency to report on Asian Americans in the aggregate, thus kind of masking significant subgroup disparities. Um, and this is also both driven by and a result of this idea of the model minority. So Asian Americans are kind of uniquely plagued by this idea that they're a model minority. Um, this was kind of initially discussed as a sociological concept in the 1980s, where Asian Americans were represented as this monolithic community characterized as being passive, compliant, overachieving, um, and kind of as a sort of corollary to that without problems or unmet needs. Um, and what's interesting about this myth is that it's kind of extremely hardy and persistent and is sort of brought up again and again, particularly in the popular media. So that was in 1997. Everybody remembers the sort of big hoopla around Tiger Moms just a few years ago. And then as recently in our very own New York Times just last year, 
um, you know, highlighting kind of this, this idea that Asian Americans are doing better than other groups. Um, and while in some cases this may be true, when we look at granular data, we really see, we start to get a different picture. Um, so from 2007 to 2011, Asian Americans, as well as Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, are one of the, were one of the fastest growing poverty groups. So while 27% you know, of the general population was living in poverty, the, this increased by 38% in the Asian American community. And again, given the tremendous ethnic diversity, looking at things like income level by ethnic subgroup is important. And then you could see that there's quite a range in distribution when you're looking across subgroups. This is national census data. Similarly, in New York City, we, when we look at city level data, we can see that you know, about a quarter of Asian Americans in New York City live in poverty. Um, and the fastest growing um, senior group in New York City are Asian seniors and they also uh, represent the largest proportion of seniors that live in poverty. About 30% of Asian American seniors live in poverty. Um, in terms of other demographic issues, a sort of a unique, um, a unique socio-demographic factor that is fairly consistent across Asian American groups is that they have high rates of limited English proficiency. Um, while rates are high as a whole, you can also see tremendous variation by subgroup. This is looking at national data, and we see similar things actually at higher levels in New York City. So citywide, about 60% of Asians as a whole are limited English proficient with really, you know, kind of a, a, a variation in rates across Asian ethnic subgroups from, you know, kind of lower, lower rates in the Asian Indian community to higher rates in the Chinese and Korean community. So, you know, what, I mean, just what we can see from available census data and really when census data is an analyzed at a granular and regional level um, is that, you know, there's a diversity in the socioeconomic profile of Asian Americans, there's a diversity in the ethnic composition of the Asian American community, there are high rates of limited English proficiency in areas like New York City, high rates of poverty, and these are factors that likely play a role in some of the health outcomes that Asian Americans are facing. So turning to the specific issue of diabetes, um, I'm going to spend a little bit of time kind of reviewing what we know about diabetes in the Asian American community. Um, so in New York City, disparities in diabetes by race and ethnicity have been, you know, really well documented. So this is data from the New York City and Haines, um, which is led by my colleague at, who is now at NYU, Dr. Thorpe. Uh, Lorna Thorpe, and this is data from the 2004 wave of NHANES, NHANES was co conducted again in 2014. Um, and what this data showed at that time was that, you know, kind of the overall prevalence of diabetes was at about 8%, um, and that a large proportion of the city, of uh, individuals in the city were undiagnosed, about a third of adults with diabetes were undiagnosed. Um, and what the data also showed is that, um, it, with measures of impaired fasting glucose, or a marker for prediabetes, about a quarter of the New York City population had prediabetes, and this rate was highest among Asian populations, um, and even higher among foreign-born Asian populations. And unfortunately, I don't have the data to present, but um, the NYC Hames Group is is uh, is now putting, looking at the new wave of data, and unfortunately what they're seeing is that these disparities have persisted and in fact worsened in some groups. So kind of not making a lot of movement in terms of reducing diabetes prevalence. Um, so these disparities persist uh, regardless of BMI status. And in fact, when examining variation by ethnic subgroup, we can see that there's um, certain groups such as the South Asian population, have higher rates of diabetes compared to even black and Hispanic populations. So the issue of BMI is an interesting one for Asian Americans, um, and it's been fairly well documented at this point that Asian Americans have a unique profile of BMI risk for Asian, uh, have a unique profile of BMI risk. So using both international data as well as data among Asian Americans here in the U.S., um, there, have, uh, there has recently been a recommendation to revise guidelines for screening for Asian Americans um, and screen them at lower rates of BMI. So, start, so there, there's a campaign right now to screen at 23. Um, this was based on WHO recommendations that came out about, I'd say, five to 10 years ago. 
um, and the ADA recently re uh, released a position statement, it was early last year, to do the same thing. But in fact, this is actually a study that came out just this week using national BRFSS data. Um, and the authors of this study uh, looked at uh, racial and ethnic disparities in recommended diabetes screenings. This is using data from 2012 to 2014. So this is using ADA standards of care. Um, so uh, the likelihood of adults receiving screening who had a BMI of over 25 and at least one risk factor. And what they found, kind of parsing the data several different ways, is that Asian Americans were much less likely to get screened compared to other groups. So there's sort of this double threat that Asian Americans are facing, even at kind of existing guidelines, they appear to be getting screened less for diabetes, um, as well as you know guidelines need to be kind of tailored for them because their BMI risk is different. Um, so that's kind of thinking about uh, risk factors at the individual level and they're, they're appear, you know, kind of bringing in a life course perspective, it appears that Asians also have an early risk of diabetes. Um, so this is, this data is a little bit old now, but it's using city data to look at gestational diabetes using birth records. Um, and what this data found, and this was back in 2001, is that the highest rates of gestational diabetes were among Asian Americans as a whole and in particular Asian American subgroups, uh, the South Asian groups in particular. Um, certain Latino subgroups were also at very high risk. Um, and actually colleagues here at Columbia did a further analysis of this data. I'm not sure if these folks are still here. Um, but looking at um, kind of geographic disparities in gestational diabetes by neighborhood. And so, you know, we can see pretty clearly in this map that there's some kind of clear uh, geographic boundaries in terms of the distribution of diabetes. Um, but what their analysis, the interesting part of their analysis and what it demonstrated is that there's really a relationship between place as well as race and ethnicity in, in gestational diabetes. So overall they found that there's no effect of living in an ethnic enclave residence on gestational diabetes in most immigrant groups, but they did find this relationship in the South Asian subgroups, they call them South Central Asians, as well as Mexican subgroups. So next I'm going to kind of move on to some of our own work, some of the limitations of what's in the literature currently or what has been in the literature historically around Asian Americans and diabetes um, because there has been sort of a slow and steady evidence base building that Asian Americans uh, face diabetes disparities, they have a unique profile. Um, but a lot of what's presented at the national level is not granular, national and regional level is not granular, so it presents data on Asian Americans as an aggregate. Um, so as part of the work of our NIH-funded Research Center of Excellence, which is focused on health disparities in Asian American communities, we made it kind of a part of our goal to really advance the understanding of granular kind of uh, subgroup disparities in Asian American communities. Um, so I'm going to share some of our work analyzing regional data that we've, that we've collected as well as secondary, secondary data sets that we've drawn from. So the first kind of uh, first set of studies I'm going to share with you drew from uh, this survey. It's called the Racial and Ethnic Approaches to Community Health. So the REACH program, um, which some of you may be familiar with, is a CDC-funded initiative. It's a national program serving, uh, dedicated to, you know, kind of broadly eliminating racial and ethnic health disparities in health. As part of the effort, uh, the CDC funded a risk factor survey that aligned with BRFSS kind of survey measures and conducted it annually for four years between 2009 and 2012 in the 28 REACH communities across 17 sites. Um, and so the CDC was kind of collecting this for evaluation purposes uh, to assess the impact of, of the REACH work. But what this also allowed was this really uh, great kind of granular level data set um, of Asian American and other racial and ethnic minority groups for us to be able to examine some of these disparities. Um, so this is an address-based random sampling approach targeting areas with high concentrations of minority communities. And what we did is analyze data from five sites with a high proportion of Asian American communities. So here in New York City, as well as data from Washington and three in Southern California. Um, we did a series of analyses, both looking at the New York City data, as well as kind of comparisons with the other sites. Um, and what we found is a few different things. Um, 
First, in terms of looking at diabetes management. So once individuals are already diagnosed with diabetes, we found first that you know, the prevalence of diabetes is, um, does vary substantially across Asian American subgroups, and um, confirming kind of other studies is, is highest among, the, in, in this data set, we could only look at Asian Indian groups. So um, is highest among Asian Indian groups, and actually their rates of diabetes kind of exceeds that of black and Hispanic groups in New York City. Um, and in terms of self-management, we found that Asian American, all, Asia, uh, all the Asian American groups included in our sample, Asian Indians, Koreans, and Chinese, were less likely to engage in kind of select uh, self-management measures such as, you know, checking your feet on a daily basis, uh, checking glucose levels on a weekly basis. So we found at the individual level that Asian Americans were less likely to engage in kind of positive diabetes self-management. But interestingly, we found the same thing at the provider level. So the provider level management was also poorer for across Asian American groups and varied according to Asian American subgroup as well. Um, so this study actually we conducted a couple years ago. This was published, or yeah, a couple years ago in AJPH. And so it was interesting to see the study that came out this week using national BRFSS data that providers are even less likely to screen Asian Americans. So there, there's something going on at the provider level, kind of a lack of awareness or recognition or acknowledgement of sort of some of the disparities that Asian Americans face. So as I mentioned, um, the REACH data was collected across sites. So we were interested in looking at um, kind of how variation occurs across sites and across communities. And what we found, kind of not surprisingly, um, but I think important scientifically to kind of make the case that these disparities really vary by both race and ethnicity is just that. That um, across the board rates were higher in, for example, the Asian American, the Asian Indian community, but that this varied quite a bit um, by geographic location. So then uh, the other data set I'm going to just highlight, uh, and this is all sort of very preliminary analysis that I'm sharing, is um, some primary data collection that we've conducted through our center. Um, because there is such a lack of granular data and even tapping into existing secondary data sets requires um, combining cohorts of data across years so that we could generate sample sizes large enough to be able to look at subgroup differences. Um, one of the studies our center engaged in was conducting a community health needs and resource assessment across diverse Asian American communities in New York City. Um, so we did this, we did one uh, round of sampling in 2006 to 2008, um, and with the renewal of our center, we conducted a new round of sampling in 2012 to 2014. So this was an interviewer administer survey um, conducted across subgroups, and we conducted approximately 100 to 200 per subgroups. Uh, question were adapted from the BRFSS and HIS and other kind of regional and national surveys. And our total sample size is approximately 1,600 Asian Americans in New York City. So just a quick snapshot of one of our, you know, kind of one of, what, uh, one of the things we're doing with this data is to really look at prevalence at a granular level across um, even more <coughs> subgroups. Um, and what we found, you know, which uh, didn't surprise us, was you know that our the rates of diabetes were reflective of what we've seen in national and other regional studies, with particular high rates across South Asian subgroups. So if you look at uh, the Bangladeshi, the Pakistani, Asian Indian, and even groups like the Indo-Caribbean community, which is uh, a significant uh, population here in New York City. Uh, you know, we, we've seen uh, quite high rates, as well as, for example, in the Filipino community, which has um, also been documented nationally as well as regionally in other places. Um, so and so the purple? Uh, the purple is the over 65 group. And I'm sorry, so, or no, not the over 65, uh, 18 to 44. 18 to 44. So what we, you know, kind of what uh, drove us for, for this data collection is to be able to provide evidence that can be used to drive interventions, which is really the focus of most of my work um, and, and the work of several of our research centers at NYU. Um, so what I'm going to spend the remainder of my time on is highlighting a case study of a particular intervention I lead. 
um, to address diabetes management um, in one South Asian ethnic subgroup in the Bangladeshi community. And that's called the DREAM Project. DREAM stands for Diabetes Research, Education, and Action for Minorities. So just as an overview of the DREAM Project, um, our goal with this study is to develop, implement, and test the efficacy of a community health worker intervention designed to improve diabetes control and management in the Bangladeshi community of New York. Um, so community health workers, how many in this room are familiar with the community health worker model? So a couple of you. Um, if you're not now, you will be soon because CHWs are a particularly hot topic right now. Uh, with ACA, starting with ACA, where they were really written into the legislation as sort of a potential cost-saving mechanism for health promotion. Um, but in the New York context, uh, the, there's a lot of interest in the use of CHWs through district models um, and with other Medicaid expansion efforts. But for those of you who are unfamiliar, community health workers are really frontline public health professionals who, you know, their kind of key characteristic is um, a shared understanding um, of the communities that they serve. So they have, you know, close understandings of the communities they're served, and that's through, you know, oftentimes shared ethnicity, but also shared culture, language, and life experiences. They're referred to sort of by a variety of terms, promotoras, outreach workers, sometimes called patient navigators. Um, but I do want to emphasize that CHWs um, are, you know, they are a professional workforce. Um, they, there's a category for CHWs in the Department of Labor, um, kind of uh, employment codes, um, and I think they're utilized in a variety of different ways. But I think to me the best way to understand what a CHW is and what their function is is to use the metaphor of a bridge. CHWs really serve as a bridge between communities and healthcare systems. Um, and CHWs can be employed within clinical systems, but they're often employed in community, community settings as well. Um, Mentioned what is the training if there is like what is the overall sort of yeah. background or approach? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. And I um you know I could talk about CHWs for hours, so <laughs> but and I didn't include a lot of a lot of this in, in the presentation, but um you know, one of the challenges with the CHW workforce is that there aren't kind of, there isn't a national accreditation system. It's statewide. Currently, New York does not have statewide accreditation, although there's a movement towards that. Um, despite that, there are sort of a set of identified core competencies that CHWs are trained in, and all of our the CHWs that are employed as part of our projects have been um, trained in a set of core competencies that are really around um, communication, you know, kind of trust building. Um, we also do additional trainings with our CHWs and kind of disease core competencies based on the projects that they're working on. Um, in New York, we work closely with the uh, New York City Community Health Worker Association that has been doing kind of CHW related training for a long time. Um, there are other states, uh, I think there are about nine states right now that have statewide CHW accreditations, Minnesota, Massachusetts, Texas, Florida, um, a, few, a few others. In terms of kind of who makes, uh, you know, who is a CHW, I think that's, a, that's the sort of million dollar question, particularly now as healthcare systems are really super interested in, you know, integrating CHWs into their, into their clinic settings. Um, you know, I think the key characteristic is really having a trusted relationship with the communities that you're serving. And so I have a team of about uh, 10 CHWs. Um, none of them really have a health background. Um, their backgrounds are really in community leadership roles. So many of them have a background in community organizing. They're kind of actively involved in their own faith-based organizations, community-based organizations. And that trust is really what they leverage in engaging the patients that they work with. Um, so I think it's kind of two things, kind of what characteristics make a good CHW. I think I do think the training issue is is separate um, and and a particular challenge, especially in the New York context where there isn't statewide accreditation. So um, for our project, we were you know, testing the efficacy of a community health worker model in improving diabetes management. Uh, and we were implementing this in the Bangladeshi population. And I often get the question of why, you know, why Bangladeshis? And I think that emerged from a variety of reasons. First, we know that South Asians, you know, as I kind of demonstrated, um, have a high burden of diabetes. 
Um, in New York City, Bangladeshis are the fastest growing, actually, Asian American group, but also the fastest growing South Asian group with the highest rates of limited English proficiency and are more likely to live in poverty compared to other South Asian populations. Um, and our project was designed using a community-based participatory approach. And so we really engage South Asian stakeholders, community leaders, um, and they identified this population as sort of uh, one experiencing very tremendous growth and in high need. Um, the other sort of uh, way that this project emerged was through NYU's partnership with Bellevue Hospital. So Bellevue Hospital, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, is NYU's teaching hospital. It's also the city's largest municipal hospital. Um, and there was, uh, starting from kind of the early 2000s, they started to see an influx of Bangladeshi patients within the uh, hospital system. Um, and we're very ill-equipped to kind of uh, serve, serve that community, both uh, by language, um, you know, there was a lack of interpreters, a, a big lack of staff serving that, um, able to speak Bengali, um, and also kind of culturally. And so that, you know, as part of our partnership with Bellevue Hospital, this project was designed to address that. Um, so so the, our eligibility criteria for, for the intervention um, was um, being a, a Bangladeshi individual, a New York City resident um, with type 2 diabetes and a confirmed A1C of uh, at least 6.5, you know, not being pregnant or on dialysis. Um, the design of our intervention, it is a randomized controlled trial. Um, where individuals are screened for eligibility and then randomized into treatment and control arms. The treatment arm receives five um, group sessions led by the community health worker, um, and these are educa educational sessions around diabetes management, and then two follow-up one-on-one visits for the community health worker. And the one-on-one -on -one visits are really opportunities to engage in more personalized individual goal setting with, the uh, with uh, participants in the treatment group. Um, our, our control group is a waitlist control group, so all of the participants receive the first session, the first group session of, of, the, um, of the intervention, um, and they're invited to come back after the six-month follow-up period to receive the entire intervention. So, um, in terms of how we recruited participants, our community health workers, and just a little bit of background, we just started to talk about this a little, uh, a little bit of background on our community health workers. So in our model for this project, our CHWs are actually hired by NYU School of Medicine. I have several other CHW interventions where CHWs are based in community settings. Um, we have a new project where we're embedding CHWs into small primary care practices. And so, you know, sort of another research goal is really understanding um, what type of CHW model is most effective. But in this setting, um, CHWs were part of our kind of NYU research team. Uh, we partnered with hospitals, Bellevue Hospital in particular, as well as other clinic sites for referrals and care coordination. Um, this intervention was conducted over a series of several rounds, and our first few rounds were conducted in Bellevue Hospital. Since then, we've also implemented the study in Queens Hospital in Jamaica and several kind of small primary care practice sites in Queens and Brooklyn. We used a real um, multi-pronged recruitment strategy, um, including tabling in clinic settings, um, doing a mass mailing to patients with phone follow-up from the community health workers. But we also really um, engaged our community resources, and this was a, a critical component of the intervention. Um, the Bangladeshi community has a very vibrant ethnic media scene, and actually across Asian American communities, ethnic media plays a hugely important role. Um, but the Bangladeshi community, I always like to tell people this, there are over 100 Bangladeshi papers in New York City alone, newspapers. And so it's, it's a very, it's clearly a, a, an important community resource. Um, so we used, uh, we engaged ethnic media for recruitment, but also during the course of the intervention to kind of feed results back to the community and kind of uh, keep community engaged in the process. Uh, we also relied on provider referrals, and then really kind of as, as we progressed through the intervention, relying on snowball and word of mouth referrals from family members and, and friends of past participants. So that's just an example of one of our media articles. It's an example of uh, tabling in Bellevue. Um, so what I want to spend a little bit of time on, uh, you know, I, I think particularly for um, healthcare providers who haven't worked with CHWs, there's a question of like kind of what, what are they doing, you know, what, what do they actually do to um, engage in, in, in health behavior change with individuals. 
Um, and I think, you know, our protocol, as I described, is CHWs lead group sessions um, and engage in some one-on-one -on -one work. But really, the intervention was designed using kind of a socio-ecological model approach, and our CHWs are really working across several levels to achieve the outcomes that they are hoping to achieve, so across individual community systems and even policy levels. So at the individual level, um, you know, providing culturally tailored health education is a key component of what they do. Um, so our curriculum was adapted from existing evidence-based diabetes management curriculum. Um, and the adaptation involved both linguistic adaptation, so everything was translated and back translated from Bengali into English and back again. Um, but I think the more critical component was a real cultural adaptation of the curriculum. And that was conducted in an iterative process um, with a coalition of community stakeholders, um, as well as nutritionists and other healthcare providers, so ensuring that dietary information was culturally tailored and relevant, um, but even um, other, other types of information. So, for example, the Bangladeshi community is about 90% Muslim. Um, it's a fairly conservative community. There are, um, in some segments of the community, kind of very prescriptive gender norms, and that influences things like engaging in physical activity, travel to doctor's appointments. And so um, those types of cultural considerations were integrated into the curriculum and into the work that the CHWs do. Um, so for example, one of the things we found out um, through the course of the intervention is that our female participants were having a very hard time engaging in physical activity. Uh, they weren't comfortable kind of doing it outside for various reasons. They felt that available resources like gyms weren't, weren't for them. You know, we did a, a, a formative study where, you know, that, that was a quote from one of the participants, it's not for people like us, you know, gyms aren't for people like us. Um, and so we actually developed, and that green image right there is, is the cover of a DVD that our community health workers led and developed. It's a culturally tailored, um, low-resource at-home exercise DVD. It's really designed for uh, low-income women in small, you know, urban settings, apartment settings, um, using resources at hand. Um, and it's entitled, that's in Bengali, but it's titled 30 Minutes for Your Health. You know, so just the idea of making physical activity a regular part of your routine and that it's something that can be done easily. Um, at the individual level, you know, empowerment and enhancing self-efficacy is a big part of what our CHWs do. And actually, in uh, my view, I think one of the understudied roles of the impact of CHWs and I think where they may have the most impact compared to other healthcare professionals. So our CHWs really work with clients one-on-one -on -one, um, in very real concrete ways to enhance self-efficacy. So one example I always like to give is uh, uh, around transportation. So as I mentioned, many we found that many female clients were relying on other family members to travel to appointments. Um, that was for a variety of reasons. One, because you know, they'd never used a public transportation system before, they weren't familiar with the New York City system. It's not unfamiliar, right, to many immigrant communities in New York City. Um, but there were also kind of cultural issues around negotiating that with family members, you know, and, and uh, you know, sort of a belief that, oh, I, mom won't be able to do it, we need to take her, you know, she should, she should have somebody accompany her. Um, Kind of layer on top of that, that uh, much of the Bangladeshi community is concentrated in kind of low-wage service sector or small business occupations, taxi driving, restaurant work, kind of small business owners like deli or cart owners. So for a lot of the, our male participants and male family members, their work hours are tremendously long and erratic and, and seven days a week. And so that has some clear implications in terms of continuity of care, particularly for someone with diabetes. Um, so our, C our female CHWs worked with clients to do things like, you know, uh, teaching them how to read a subway map, accompanying them to the first subway stop that was the closest to their home, and then, you know, practicing with them the next month to say, okay, now this time you take the subway by yourself and see if you can do it. And so they're kind of able to uh, build self-efficacy around issues like that that have an impact on continuity of care. Um, and then also at the individual level, you know, as I mentioned, CHWs are sort of this bridge between communities and systems, and I think it's not just healthcare systems, and particularly in working with immigrant populations, that's very critical. So we find many of our patients are dealing with immigration issues, with housing issues, and taking a social determinants approach, those all impact, you know, diabetes management. And so our CHWs really play a role in kind of linkage to services and referrals.
Beyond the individual level, um, and this goes back to the idea of CHWs really being community leaders and engaged in their communities. Um, CHWs play a role in kind of promoting positive health contexts, and they've um, done this in a variety of ways. Um, so thinking about ways to increase access to affordable physical fitness opportunities that are culturally relevant. Um, so this is not in this project, but in another CHW study I led in the Filipino community. Uh, we worked with a CBO partner to start incorporating things like line dancing and yoga classes within CBO settings that were more culturally relevant. Um, and then really providing environmental changes in community settings that are relevant for the populations they work in. So as part of our work through the DREAM project and our, our CHW's work, they started engaging with um, Bangladeshi ethnic grocery stores, with faith-based organizations, and with Bangladeshi restaurants to try to incorporate, for example, healthy menu items and do messaging around healthy menu items, to do promotion of healthy products within grocery store settings. Again, aligning with a lot of um, citywide efforts, you know, so there's this, the citywide Shop Healthy campaign, um, as well as, you know, things like menu labeling policies that are being implemented that oftentimes don't filter down to immigrant populations. And so the CHWs play a role in kind of some of that community building. Um, and then finally at the systems and policy level. So, you know, given that CHWs do this very intense one-on-one -on -one work with, with individuals and groups of individuals, one of their biggest assets is that they have stories. You know, they have tremendous stories of kind of the, the both the challenges community members face in, you know, uh, having a diabetes diagnosis and navigating the healthcare system, but also kind of uh, potential remedies for, for how that can be solved. Um, and in term, from a policy perspective, stories are often what makes the most difference um, for policymakers. And so our CHWs have played a really active role in advocacy efforts, both at the city and statewide level, as well as at the systems level. So they've done a lot of work engaging with healthcare systems. We've done a series of cultural competency trainings throughout the city, um, but also just meeting with leadership and really uh, talking through some of the specific challenges of the populations they work with. spend a little bit of time um, highlighting a few results from our study to date. So the, the, we have actually completed the DREAM study. We just ended our last cohort. Uh, the data I'm going to show is only from our first five cohorts. Um, so if you just look at the bottom, this is the data I'll share is on um, analyzed complete data from 117 treatment group participants and 95 control group participants. Um, and again, these are just snapshots um, of, a, of a few of a few areas where we've really seen some positive outcomes from the intervention. So, in terms of behavior change, physical activity uh, very quickly and early came up as an area that um, was a, a specific challenge for this population. There were very low baseline rates of physical activity, um, and finding ways to engage in physical activity and kind of create cultural. Uh, that change cultural norms around physical activity was a goal of the intervention. Um, and as you can see, both treatment and control groups experienced increase in um, self-reported physical activity, um, although the uh, treatment group did report higher levels at a six-month follow-up, um, and these differences were statistically significant. Similarly, around nutrition, um, again, this is just a highlight of we have uh, various measures and scales around nutrition. Um, rice is a, is a staple food in, in all Asian populations and you know, as part of the cultural adaptation um, and part of our engagement with community partners, it was, you know, the, the messaging that was incorporated in the curriculum is not, you know, you have to get rid of your own cultural diet, but that you can make modifications that align with your own cultural diet. And so promoting brown rice was sort of a key element in um, some of the nutrition guidance. Um, and we saw, you know, increases in reporting uh, eating brown rice, self-consumption of brown rice. And then this is just some information on, you know, knowledge changes. So, you know, I think most providers who treat diabetic patients know that knowledge of A1C and what it is is, is very poor among diabetic patients. Um, it was no different in this population. Um, and that this was an area where we, we saw, you know, significant knowledge change among participants in the treatment group. 
So this is just a snapshot of some of our clinical outcome data. So as a whole, we didn't see um, uh, much of a reduction in A1C um, from baseline to six months, but we did see more positive, um, significant reductions in weight, in BMI, as well as in total cholesterol in the treatment group. But our findings around A1C were probably at least partially driven around our eligibility criteria, where we had a, a you know, we individuals who had an A1C of 6.5 or higher were eligible. So what we find in looking at our data is individuals with a higher baseline A1C um, were more likely to have a significant reduction in A1C at follow-up. So that's um, that's uh, kind of a. a a case study of, of one of our interventions. So I'm just going to spend the last few minutes talking through some recommendations. Um, you know, I guess my, my take-home message is that, you know, disparities um, in risk for Asian Americans exist by Asian subgroup, um, by individual level factors like BMI, as well as self-management for individuals who have diabetes, but also systems level factors. So, you know, there are disparities in screening as well as in management that seem to be related to um, provider recommendations and provider practice. Um, there's also upstream factors around place as well as sort of life course issues that should be considered for Asian Americans and diabetes. Um, and I think the reason why I wanted to highlight this is as a research center, um, we spend a lot of time, an inordinate amount of time, making the case that Asian Americans are a group that should be studied. Um, and I think we have substantial and enough evidence at this point to, for, for that not to be the case anymore. We shouldn't have to sort of justify um, why understanding disparities in Asian American communities is important, because that really hinders more important time that could be spent on developing kind of promising models and culturally adapted practices to decrease disparities in this population. So just a few recommendations, um, you know, I think uh, granular data collection, reporting, and analysis is just, will continue to be important. Um, and there's really not a day that goes by that we don't see a publication in, in the literature where Asian American data could have been reported and analyzed and wasn't, you know, and I think um, that's just a disservice to, to science broadly, but it's also, you know, clearly a disservice to understanding health disparities and um, improving health outcomes in this population. Um, at the policy level, you know, educating policymakers on Asian American communities and ensuring funding priorities are inclusive of diverse Asian communities is important. Then at the practice level, you know, provider education regarding disparities across diverse subgroups um, to both Asian as well as non-Asian providers, because I, I think this hasn't been studied yet, but my guess is that some of those disparities in screening and management may not look that different um, even when Asian patients are being served by Asian, Asian providers. Um, and there are efforts that kind of uh, are, are geared towards this now, so um, after their, recommend, their kind of recommendations for screening, the ADA started a campaign called Screen at 23, where they're really trying to do, you know, engage providers across the U.S. Um, you know, a translation of guidance and recommendations to clinical settings, I think that's always a challenge, um, but uh, doing this, you know, across subgroups is important as well. Um, and then our, our work has demonstrated the efficacy of CHW models in improving healthcare outcomes and health behaviors. So integrating CHWs into healthcare settings for diabetes prevention and management, I think, is a promising kind of uh, practice. So I'm going to end with that. This is my contact information. Um, as I mentioned, we haven't had the opportunity to collaborate with, with colleagues here at the Berry Center. Um, we do a lot of work around diabetes. Um, and have very strong engagement with Asian American communities across the city. So we, you know, we welcome collaborations and uh, more discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, questions. I have uh, three questions. Uh, you have you described the control group as a waitlist group. Mm -hmm. uh, does that mean that at the end of the six months they are now receiving the intervention? They're eligible to receive it. We, I'd say, we have about thirty percent that come back to do to do it. Because I thought that you could further strengthen the study. Right. Because, uh, uh, we do the same three courses. And I 
There's a, sort of a resource issue, you know, and in, in so, so yeah, it's also so it's one a problem in terms of getting them back, but also a, a CHW kind of caseload and burden issue because we were implementing this over uh, subsequent cohorts. Um, you've got so much trouble. Right, right. Uh, my second question is how to do with that graph you showed. The decrease in HPA would seem greater for the ones who started off. Mm -hmm. The ones who started off higher presumably they were they're diabetics. Yes. So they're all type two diabetics. All, all, all the all of the yes, all all the individuals so are type two diabetics. Make no intervention with respect to their uh, treatment or whatever care. We did it, yeah. So that's a good question. This intervention was really designed um, it it didn't involve integration with the healthcare team. So the CHWs were not working with the provider to sort of develop their treatment plan. It was really designed to promote self-management outside of the clinical setting. Now having said that, because we were working closely with Bellevue Hospital as well as the other clinical sites, um, that, that did happen. You know, I think there was engagement between the CHWs and the providers, but it wasn't a kind of a protocolized part of the intervention. So, so you think that they Approximately 100. I don't think so, that so I was it's 100 to 150. Right. So I was wondering whether uh, Sorry. you had looked into uh, possible explanations for the pretty wide difference, say, the Himalayan group at one extreme mm -hmm. and the Bangladeshi group at the other extreme within the South Asian mm -hmm. community. You know, genetically. Uh, certainly not found in the Himalayan, there is no difference among Sri Lankan, Pakistani, Bangladesh, mm -hmm. uh, Indian uh, groups. So are these differences, uh, have you looked at whether they can be, are they explained by uh, socioeconomic status or uh, other cultural practices? Yeah, so that's the next step in our analysis. Uh, the survey instrument that we collected um, included a sort of a diverse range of measures uh, assessing cultural beliefs, uh, health behavior practices around nutrition, physical activity, but also other um, social determinant measures like social capital, social support, um, and things like discrimination, for example. We've done, we've already conducted a, an analysis of the South Asian subgroup looking at the relationship between uh, religious affiliation, discrimination, and BMI, and have found you know some variability across groups with Muslim and Sikh populations reporting higher BMI and more likely to uh, report discrimination, for example. So we do you know we do think it's driven by kind of socio sociocultural uh, factors, the the differences in the subgroups as well as kind of differences in dietary practices. I mean, even between the Indo Indo-Caribbeans are largely from, you know, North Central India. Right. And uh, so that's a pretty big difference. Right. And just a caveat about this data set is that it, it was, so this is a community-based sample. Um, so it's not, you know, a representative data set of the, of the populations. But, sure. but the goal was really to do kind of a broad strokes characterization of some of these specific subgroups, which other data sets don't allow for. Mm -hmm. 
very different. Mm -hmm. So, as you mentioned, these new points for BMA, um, what's it really trying to get? It says that to try to identify individuals at risk, um, BMI 23 means something else is different with that person. Mm -hmm. A BMI 23 compared to a BMI 25 in mm -hmm. other race ethnic groups. Mm -hmm. What's different? Mm -hmm. We know, for example, from studies done in East Asians that there's greater total eye possibly, mm -hmm. there's also greater ectopic. Yeah. Which is really maybe driving a lot. Mm -hmm. Many studies coming out of India is yeah. showing a very different profile. Right. Yeah. Visceral adiposition is really central. Uh, yeah. So I, I guess my point is when you talk about where you're going with your work, mm -hmm. just Asia is a very, even Asian American, it's all encompassing. Yeah. And I don't know if there's maybe another way to better refine. Yeah. Study or Bangladeshi, not necessarily same as Chinese. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's in large part a political problem. You know, I mean, Asian that Asian Americans are categorized by the census and by other federal and regional reporting agencies in in this way. Um, and in some ways, it's arbitrary. You know, so you'll notice that we have an Arab sample. Um, in this population. Arab Americans are not considered part of the Asian American subgroup. Um, but in fact, sociodemographically and maybe even genetically, they probably have more similarities to Asian some Asian American communities compared to uh, European white populations, which is how they're categorized here in the US. Arabs are categorized as white. Um, so I think, you know, that with that context, you know, that, that, that's sort of the political reality that we're living with in terms of how things are funded, um, how programs are developed. Um, our response to that is really that, you know, granular data collection and reporting by ethnic subgroup is, is what's key, you know, and we make an effort through our studies and our research center to not publish on Asian Americans as a whole because I agree with you. It's, it's, it is in many ways a meaningless category. Um, but I think that has to be balanced against sort of the political reality. I know it's really off of the focus of your talk, but can you talk a little more about the, the characteristic of uh, higher risk per row BMI of the Asian community in comparison to the native countries and comparison to second generation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, a lot of the guidance around assessing Asians for diabetes at lower BMI was actually driven by home country data. So data from China, India, as, you know, as well as other countries in, in, the, uh, in the Asian region. Um, I think it's only been more recently that, and, and actually with the, the publication that ADA released last year, where they conducted a meta-analysis looking at Asian American data, so data from Asian immigrants here in the US, to see if that kind of association held up. Um, and they felt uh, that they were able to make that conclusion strongly enough uh, in a subgroup of Asian Americans. So they only assessed Chinese, Filipino, Korean, South Asian, and I think Japanese. So it's not everyone, again. Um, they were able to see that same association. I think the second generation is a really interesting question. There is almost no data on that. Um, I think there are a few uh, regional data sets, like the California Health Interview Survey, um, where, and also because California probably has a large enough population of second-generation immigrants, given that there's, there's been a lot of historical migration there, um, we may be able to start to answer that data. I mean, what we are seeing is that young Asian kids are, you know, like all kids in the U.S., are experiencing increasing rates of obesity. So I'm not sure how that relationship is going to hold up in second-generation Asians. Thank you. Thank you so much.